This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we have a Thanksgiving special, Stacey Abrams. All eyes are on Georgia now as the campaigns for both Senate seats are underway to determine which party will control the U.S. Senate. For Democrats, the starting point for winning in Georgia is the historic work of Stacey Abrams. When she ran for governor of Georgia in 2018 as the first African-American and the first woman candidate, she got more votes than any Democrat in Georgia history, including Obama and Hillary Clinton. But because of Republican vote suppression, she was not elected. Nevertheless, that campaign paved the way for Biden to win the state last month. We spoke with her in April 2019 about how she built the coalition that now hopes to win two Senate seats on January 5th. Before we talk about uh, your book, Lead from the Outside, I want to talk about what you accomplished in Georgia when you ran for governor. Everybody I know says that if there'd been a fair count, you would be the governor of Georgia right now. Um, but you did accomplish anyway some amazing things in that race. So first I want to talk about the votes you got despite the votes you weren't allowed to get. How did your vote compare with other Democrats in recent history? So we received more votes than any Democrat in Georgia history, uh, including President Obama, Secretary Clinton, any, any Democrat who's ever run. Uh, we were only under by 54,000 votes, but what I was so excited about was the composition of the electorate. We tripled Latino turnout. We tripled Asian Pacific Islander turnout. We increased youth participation rates by 139%. We increased black turnout by 40%. But to put that in context, in 2014, 1.1 million Democrats voted altogether. In 2018, 1.2 million black people voted for me. And we centered communities of color. We centered marginalized communities. We talked about their issues. And I was told that that would be to the detriment of my ability to secure white votes. And I actually received a higher percentage of white votes than any candidate in Georgia, uh, any Democratic candidate in Georgia since Bill Clinton. How did you do it? (laughs) Well, one is that I believe what I say. I, I believe diversity matters. And I think it's an active responsibility. It's insufficient to say you want something to be so, but you don't find your own responsibility to make it happen. And so our campaign was grounded in talking about identities, but never as an exclusionary principle. People vote, people participate when they think they can be seen. And my job was to show up in places to have either firsthand knowledge or have a supporting team that could help me understand what concerns were animating those communities, or worse, what concerns were keeping them out of the body politic. And we built a campaign around creating access and creating a pathway for their participation. And it worked. And the work that went into this wasn't just one campaign for governor. No. (laughs) So one thing I talk about in, in the book, in Lead from the Outside, is the responsibility to build that systems don't just come into being and therefore dismantling those systems or creating your own systems also require intentionality and thoughtfulness and infrastructure. And I, by my nature, am a systems person. I believe that democracy should be vibrant and engaged, but I also believe that poverty is a moral 
And I believe that communities are too often kept distant from their power by being convinced that they, their power doesn't exist. And so I've spent the last 40, well, I'm 45, so let's say between one and five, I was probably not as active. <laughs> but <laughs> I've spent most of my waking life thinking about how do you get more people to the table? How do you get more people engaged? And in the last 20 years, I've been able to put that into practice through my work in the private sector, the nonprofit sector, and certainly the political sector. You have a really important section of your book on how to fight for groups of which you are not a part. And of course, we have to do this because we need allies if we're going to win. But it's hard to do that right. You say empathy is not enough. What is your approach? I think you have to have understanding, but you also have to lift up those who actually have those experiences. Sometimes empathy gives us an excuse. It lets us think that because I have something similar in my background that I now know what you know and I know what you need. And that's when allyship becomes patronizing. What's more important is creating space for the people who actually have those experiences to do something about it. So for example, when I became Democratic leader, I took over a caucus that had very few staff, in fact, almost no one. And I was building a staff, but I built a staff that looked like me and looked like people I know, so it was black and white. And I took myself to task that in a state that was quickly diversifying, where Latinos were becoming nearly 10% of the population, where Asian Pacific Islanders were growing in force, I had a responsibility to increase their access. And so I created an internship program to bring them on board initially, and then I found the monies necessary to hire them. I hired a Palestinian, a young Palestinian woman to be my executive assistant because I could not speak authentically about engaging the Muslim community and not find space for their employment. And these are all people who were absolutely qualified for the jobs they had. But I had to be intentional about creating space so they had a platform to do the leadership they needed to do. So the big question is, after you accomplished all these things, the huge increase in turnout of Latinos, Asian Americans, young people, uh, after you got more votes than anybody, including Obama on the Democratic ticket, how come the Republican won? And because I was running against a cartoon villain who was the referee, the scorekeeper, and the contestant. He had 10 years of voter suppression under his belt. He had built a system that built on top of previous attempts at voter suppression that actually started under his predecessor. And he manipulated the laws, uh, aggressively enforced and selectively enforced those laws. He failed also to do the fundamentals of his job. And so we had this marriage of incompetence and malfeasance that allowed him to suppress access to the vote. I cannot prove empirically that I would have gotten every one of the votes that were suppressed. But if you look at the demography of those votes, if you look at the intentionality of his actions, I think it's a really good guess. So let's talk about Fair Fight Action. So Fair Fight Action was born of my frustration, my disappointment, but also my anger. Uh, democracy is ours. I am an American. I am entitled to have my voice heard. But so were the millions of people who cast their ballots on both sides of the aisle and the tens of thousands who were not allowed to have their voices heard. My responsibility beyond getting an office is ensuring that anyone who wants to speak up about the, the direction they want to see for our state or for our country, that they are heard. And in Georgia, they were not. 
And so I want there to be a fair fight. And let's be clear, no matter what happens, I will never win the office of governor in 2018. It won't happen. But my responsibility is larger than my personal benefit. And that is that we fix the system itself. Fair fight action focuses on three things, registration access, ballot access, and ballot counting. Making sure that you can get on the rolls, you can stay on the rolls, you have the ability to actually cast a ballot, they don't close your precinct or deny you access to an absentee ballot, and that your vote counts once you cast it. And we're gonna do that through litigation, through legislation, and through advocacy work. And where do we stand on that today? So the litigation is ongoing. We are currently in a tete-a-tete with the Secretary of State and the Governor's Office, or technically the Secretary of State's Office in the state of Georgia. They are seeking to dismiss our motion. Um, They're seeking to dismiss our lawsuit with a motion to dismiss. Uh, We will keep fighting. We believe we will be successful. Uh, We have been fighting a terrible bill that has moved through the legislature and sits on the governor's desk that will allow him to spend $150 million more than has ever been spent by any state on voting machines. And he's likely to purchase machines that are known to be flawed, known to be hackable, known to be vulnerable. They've been called the worst voting machines out there. And it is a happy coincidence that the company that stands likely to win the bid formerly employed his chief of staff, his deputy chief of staff, and his general counsel just months before he became governor. Now, uh, you're an attorney. You graduated from Yale Law School. <laughs> what, uh, what do you think are your chances in court on this one? Uh, we think that on the issue of litigation, we think that we have a very strong case. We believe that it's uh, sui generis in that most litigation on voting rights have tried to tackle individual elements. Uh, precinct closures or voter ID or uh, closing of access, you know, the issues that we face, and they, they tend to approach it individually. We are looking at it systemically. We are taking the Brown versus the Board of Education approach, which is to say that while de jure, while the law may say it's so, the fact of the matter is when the law is implemented as it is being implemented in Georgia, people are being disenfranchised and they do not have the right to vote. And so our argument is that we believe that the de facto denial of the right to vote violates the Constitution, and I'm very bullish on our chances. But I'm also very happy that we have other folks fighting this fight. Uh, Chairman Cummings, who is the chair of uh, the Oversight Committee in Congress in the House of Representatives, has demanded documents from the Secretary of State and the governor to investigate their bad actions. We also have been part of hearings, field hearings, being led by Congresswoman Marsha Fudge, who's the chair of the subcommittee on uh, oversight for administration looking at the Voting Rights Act. And then Terry Sewell, who's pushing for the restoration of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. They're all paying attention to what we're doing. And so I do think, whether it's through litigation or legislation, I do think we will be successful at some point. Now, I've heard that Georgia isn't the only state with this kind of problem. What's your sense of the national picture right now? So one of the reasons I'm traveling the country and talking about this is that it's not endemic to Georgia. I think Georgia had not only the most singular example of voter suppression, but it's the most directly connected to the victory or loss in an election. Voter suppression is real, it's endemic, it's pervasive, and it's been around forever. But in my case, I had essentially a cartoon villain opponent and the clearest case of not only voter suppression, but the main actor 
who clearly controlled the outcome of the election. However, we know that in North Dakota in 2018, people were denied the right to vote because they were Native American. We know that in 2016, if you lived in Wisconsin or Michigan, there were efforts at voter suppression that were incredibly successful. We know that in Florida, there is a perennial issue with whether or not votes count. We know that in Texas and in North Carolina, voter registration, which is the predicate to being able to cast your ballot, has been made nearly impossible by third parties in Texas and been made very difficult in North Carolina. And across the country, including in California and other places, there are methods of voter suppression that are insidious and almost invisible to the eye unless you're the person trying to vote. And so my responsibility is to use Georgia as an object lesson. Uh, And because this is my state, to use our opportunities to try to solve it in Georgia. But we filed a federal lawsuit because our success in Georgia will affect the rest of the country. So let's let's talk about your book, Lead from the Outside. It has exercises. In the first one, you call an ambition exercise. How come ambition is number one? Because ambition is the foundation for leadership. You have to want more. In fact, the the title of the chapter is Dare to Want More. And if you're from the outside, and, and marginalization happens in a lot of ways. You can be from the outside because of race or gender or ethnicity or religion or class or simply, you know, because you're just different than those around you. But whatever keeps you outside of the normative power structure, to get inside, you've got to have a reason. And we often mistake dreams for ambition. Dreams are things that make you happy, but you can forget a dream. In fact, we often forget our (laughs) dreams. Ambition animates you, it fires you up, and it's unsettling. But we have to then harness it. And the challenge is that if you're from the outside, you're rarely taught how to harness your ambition. If you come from a powerful family, if you come from a power structure that validates your every thought, then there are systems in place to help you turn ambition almost automatically into action. But for the rest of us, we have to have an architecture. And that means we have to know what we're trying to get to. And so what I wanted to do in this book, and the whole book is about this, is take what I learned through trial and error, but also through being deeply anal retentive and methodical and write it down, create a handbook for those of us who do not have those systems that are already designed for our success. And the bird agrees. Birds are chirping with happiness. (laughs) One of the surprising parts to me about your book is the section about the hack. You say that you have been a good hacker. This is kind of surprising. What do you mean? <laughs> well, you know, in, in, in modern parlance, we talk about hacking things, hacking meals. It's basically how do you figure out what the system is and then how do you get around it or through it without doing the regular stuff. A lot of my life has been about a hack. It's been about how do you take these traditional spaces and figure out if you can't get them to let you in, how do you figure out your own way inside? Uh, you know, in years past, it would have been called guerrilla warfare. Uh, <laughs> but for me, it's it's understanding that when you first look at opportunity, when you first look at these doorways and gateways, there may seem to be no possible point of entry. And that's why we have to figure out our own codes and our own systems. And so what I tried to do with this book, and particularly in this chapter, is talk about how I've hacked my way inside, how I've, both in the the sort of computer science and video games parlance, but also in the very, you know, pedestrian 
physical idea of just hacking through when you've got to slice through if you've ever you know, wor- worked on a farm when you've got to cut through the weeds and get through the detritus sometimes it's just about recognizing you're not going to get there the normal way so you're going to have to fight your way through in your book you say you reject the idea of work-life balance can you explain why because work-life balance is a lie it is a bald-faced lie told by someone who was selling something and you need to return whatever it is they sold you. I, I've been asked how I write novels and run for office and start companies. And what I'm supposed to say is that, well, I've figured out this amazing, you know, equilibrium and things. That's not true. I've made mistakes. I've forfeited other opportunities. I've not done things that I care about because I haven't cared about them as much as I cared about the thing I wanted to do at that moment. And what work-life balance does is it creates a false sense of opportunity, but it also puts pressure on you in ways that are untenable because eventually you're going to fail. Things are going to fall apart. So instead, I operate under work-life Jenga. That's the game where everything gets stacked up and you have to pull pieces out and you hope like hell that nothing falls over. But the reality is, like Jenga, when everything collapses in on itself, the job isn't to ignore that it fell apart. It's to rebuild it and figure out a stronger structure to make it work. You have a couple of other wonderful rules. If it can't change the world, we don't do it. And that's followed by don't deal with jerks. Yes. So (laughs) I I started a company right after I left the city attorney's office. And that was my first venture into entrepreneurship. And I realized I needed a partner in part because I think you always get better when you have people around you who know things that you don't know and who push you to be stronger. My first business partner was a woman named Laura Hodgson. Laura and I have since started three other companies. But in our first one in Insomnia, we had a set of rules. And one of our rules is we don't work with jerks. It was slightly more crass when we wrote it down. Uh, But our point was this. We'd both come from spaces where we'd worked with people who weren't just difficult to deal with. They were disrespectful. They devalued us, in some ways dehumanized us. And when you work in those spaces and you feel compelled to keep doing it, you start to internalize how you're treated and you validate it. And so we had a rule that if people were not respectful of our values, we could disagree. You could have a difficult personality, but you could not devalue who we were. You could not treat us as less than real and human and whole. And so we had a rule that if we just didn't respect you and thought that you were a bad person or just not a good person, the money wasn't worth it. I want to ask a little about your family. You have the most wonderful acknowledgments, and it's clear you have an amazing family. I'm especially interested in your parents because they started in Mississippi, and I'm, I'm old enough to know what it meant to be a black person in Mississippi. Could you tell us a little about them? My parents are the most extraordinary people I've ever known, and I've met some really amazing people. But my mom and dad are both from Hattiesburg, Mississippi. My mom is one of seven. My dad is one of five. My dad jokes that he's from the wrong side of the track, and my mom's from the wrong side of the wrong side of the tracks. Like she's who poor people made fun of. Uh, my mother's life story is, especially her younger years, is like a Dickens novel. I mean, every time she tells us something, we go and buy her more stuff. <laughs> what they did was not let their humble beginnings in some ways their tragic beginnings they didn't allow that to diminish what they thought they were capable of 
you know, my father is dyslexic. He didn't learn to read functionally. I mean, he was able to make his way through school. He made his way through college because he's this amazing memory and he's incredibly smart. But he learned to read better by reading to my youngest sister when he had fallen and hurt himself and wasn't able to work full time and they needed someone to watch my youngest sister when she they couldn't afford kindergarten for her or pre-k my mother has always been just this brilliant woman who can make things happen out of nothing and i saw her do that not only as a mom and a librarian but also as a pastor i saw my father fight hard for people who didn't always value and respect him and sometimes benefited from his work, but he didn't benefit from it. And then I saw them turn those moments of defeat into opportunities for triumph by becoming ministers. And they were called into the ministry and they live their faith and their sense of justice and responsibility every single day. And as long as they are not disappointed in me, I know I'm doing the right thing. One last thing. The amazing thing about your book is that it doesn't say vote for me because I can do this. It says you can do this, even if you're an outsider. I wrote this book in part because I was giving talks to different groups. I was I was actually in the middle of my campaign. I just started my campaign for governor. It was in the middle of the primary and wanted to provide a handbook. Uh, there are a lot of leadership books out there, and there are a lot of political memoirs. I didn't want to write a memoir because I've met me and I, I'm, I like my story, but I don't think it's sufficient to sustain a whole book. But I think there were things I did that positioned me to be the first black woman to be a nominee for a party, a major party for governor. I knew there were things I had done that allowed me to help start companies that were helping women and people of color and other communities access capital. I'd started this voter registration organization that had registered uh, by the end of 2018 more than 300,000 people. There were things I knew, but I also understood that knowledge in my head wasn't helping other people and that one-off conversations <laughs> were inefficient and I really value efficiency. And so for me, this was really about enlarging the army of people who can be successful, especially those who discount themselves before anyone else can. When you're on the outside, you're perennially looking in, trying to figure out how to get inside. And I believe that if you can find a doorway or a cracked window and shove yourself through that space, your responsibility is not to run and get the next thing you need. Your job is to turn around and prop it open and send out a clarion call and tell folks, here's where it is, come on through. And that's what I tried to do. Well, Stacey Abrams, thanks so much for talking with us today. And we're really excited about whatever it is you do next. John, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.